This is a vital update about coronavirus. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. Good evening. The coronavirus is the biggest threat this country has faced for decades. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. Today, I can announce that for the first time in our history, the government is going to step in and help to pay people's wages. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. But we are hearing in the last few moments that the Prime Minister has been taken to hospital. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. Well, I'm sorry if people feel that there have been failings. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. Are you I have a great, I have great love for, for all of the people from our country. But uh, as you know, China tried to say at one point, maybe they stopped now, that it was caused by American soldiers. That can't happen. It's not going to happen. Not as long as I'm president. Uh, it comes from China. Stay home. Protect the NHS. Save lives. I can report through the government's ongoing monitoring and testing program that as of 9 a.m. today, there have been 300,034, 974,000 tests carried out across the UK. Stay home. Protect the NHS. Save lives. A lot of good things have come out about the hydroxy. A lot of good things have come out. And you'd be surprised at how many people are taking it, especially the frontline workers, before you catch it. The frontline workers, many, many are taking it. I happen to be taking it. I happen to be taking it. Stay home. Protect the NHS. Save lives. The head of the World Health Organization has defended its handling of the coronavirus pandemic. The WHO has been sharply criticized by the United States and will be the subject of an independent inquiry. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. How did they come up with this number of six feet? I think they just pulled it out of their rear end. Stay home. Protect the NHS. Save lives. I'm protesting because our liberties have been taken away by a government under, under, under dodgy scientific data. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. And then I said, supposing you brought the light inside the body, you can, which you can do either through the skin or uh, in some other way. And I think you said you're going to test that too. Sounds interesting. Right, and then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute. 
one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or or almost a cleaning? Because you see it gets on the lungs and it does a tremendous number of the lungs. So it'd be interesting to check that so that you're going to have to use medical doctors. Stay home. Protect the NHS. Save lives. Our headlines today, a defiant response from Downing Street over new allegations that the Prime Minister's chief aide breached lockdown rules. To help save lives, stay at home. It's fair to say that the coronavirus known as COVID-19 has brought in a period unprecedented in the modern world. It's strange to think that not long ago there was a time when I wasn't saying PPE, aerosol generating procedure, or R0 of 2.5 every single day. Since the first cases of unusual pneumonia were first seen in China in December, this pandemic virus has, at the time of recording, spread to 210 countries and territories with 5,347,739 confirmed cases, of whom 350,869 have sadly died. At this time, there is a lot of fake news, conjecture and speculation about COVID-19, with opinion being presented as fact. Here at Take Orally, we've always tried to only present evidence-based information. For this episode, I was joined by Dr. Andrew Lindsay, consultant in emergency medicine via Zoom to discuss the response to the pandemic and its impact on our department at the Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. All information is correct at the time of recording. Any guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Before we go on any further though, we were recording this episode the same week as the news was released of the tragic loss of Manjeet Singh Rehat, consultant in emergency medicine at the Royal Derby Hospital. An inspirational leader and teacher, we would like to dedicate this podcast to his memory. Hello Andy, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you JT, how are you? I'm very well. Um, um, as we seem to be asking everyone at the moment, are you keeping safe? I am keeping safe, uh, following all the social distancing measures, and I'm uh, currently very, very safe in, in my house with my family today. Um, after doing some uh, school work and some other bits and bobs with my daughter earlier, uh, ready for this podcast to go uh, Brilliant. out as best as possible. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you for zooming in. Uh, just got some questions uh, that we've uh, sort of been through already. Um, so I suppose we're. You've mentioned about social distancing. We're now well over a month into our whole lockdown. Um, it seems like a very long time ago before this thing was even around, when there was Christmas and it was still this thing that was coming up in China and we were all just a little bit, hmm, that's interesting, etc. Um, but then as a, as a consultant in A&E, you know, facing COVID as it was making its way into Europe and we were knowing it was going to come along, what were the priorities for you and, and, and for, the, for the teams that you were, you were being part of? How, what were your priorities as we were facing COVID-19? So I think the number one priority has always been um, safety of all the staff, uh, both in ED and at the hospital. At the end of the day, um, as evidence has evolved uh, regarding potential spread of COVID-19, uh, initially thought through potentially heavy droplet and what was appropriate PPE and sensible measures, um, we just tried to uh, augment the advice and the guidance within ED and trust as a whole to protect everyone as best as possible, um, but also to ensure that 
mainly do we reflect the current national guidelines, both with PHE, but if where there are areas where we think we should go a step further, that we take prompt action to try and address that. Um, and other than that, it's also to ensure the safety of the patients. Um, there are uh, patients who obviously we have or suspected COVID-19, but there's also a lot of patients who we know who are, we consider cold, who probably don't have the disease. And we took early steps about how to organise the department in order to try and keep those streams apart as best as possible, um, to mitigate any risk of inadvertently infecting those who didn't have COVID-19, um, but also to give all the patient groups, regardless of whether what they were coming to the hospital with, um, the best possible care and the best possible chances of getting home. Cool. And um, so you, you mentioned quite a few things there. One of the things was about the sort of the streams within the department. Uh, so what, what was the sort of the process that you, we went through in terms of streamlining the department in terms of our hot patients and our cold patients and ensuring as much business as usual? So we knew that, uh, we predicted that there could be a very large volume COVID population. Similar to the rest of the country, nobody really knew 100% yeah, exactly how many we were gonna get. Um, People have done their best efforts with mathematical modelling, um, but these things, particularly when it's a novel disease, are imprecise at the best of times. Um, we had got um, the trust that prepared uh, the pandemic flu plan last year. Um, it was very detailed and very precise, and so at more of a coordinated level, it was just augmenting or sliding COVID into that or vice versa. Um, as best as possible, so we already had a framework in order to how to potentially arrange the department. Um, but other than that, it's been a staggered process as COVID has developed. So initially, when we saw sporadic cases in the community, um, exactly as has been said, it was a phase of identification and isolation, um, and that's why initially we, you know, we only had less than one a day or even up to a few presenting to the department so we could use the decon room specifically to keep them very isolated from everyone else and in fact uh, via 111 hopefully send most of them home um, even uh, with or without swab as was relevant um, as the department has grown um, most of it has grown out of the bits that were most important so um, in terms of aerosolizing generating procedures uh, we knew that for the highest safety envelope, ideally, they needed to be done somewhere where there was more of a negative pressure ventilation environment and also preferably in a closed room. Um, that meant that normally, how we have business as usual, where we do high-risk procedures in recess, it wasn't immediately the most suitable place. So we had to adapt to, along with our anaesthetic and critical care colleagues, with Ian Moffitt, um, to work out where the best place was. And some hard work from uh, Shaft, um, particularly regarding the placement of these things, identified that for those, uh, using part of MACU and Bluetooth initially uh, was probably the best. As numbers increased, we've had to augment and also feedback from the staff on the ground doing all the actual work um, to show A, that we're listening, but also to keep that safety on the load. Um, and that's pretty much uh, it's developed progressive through the department as per in line as much as possible with the uh, major incident plan um, and with a few slight tweaks um, because this is pandemic flu rather than a traumatic or poisoning or any other kind of incident. 
Um, but in essence, it is currently as mapping to that as much as possible. Um, and therefore, through good preparation, we just augmented the kind of things that we would do rather than having to reinvent the wheel that lots of places have. Good. Uh, and Shaf, you mentioned there is uh, Shafiq Ahmad. He's one of our consultants and head of the resource steering group, for, for those who don't know him. Um, so you, um, you mentioned it was based on influenza planning. Has, has it been any big differences? Obviously, this is a different virus. It's not a flu virus. Has, has there been much tweaking? You said you just slotted in COVID as, a, as a replacing influenza. Was, were there any other changes that you had to make? Yeah, well, the, main, the main problem with COVID as a novel virus is in terms of our countermeasures to pandemic flu, there's specific things built into the party regarding rapid immunisation, um, in this case, for providing Tamiflu or Stamavir, depending on what the disease is, um, and COVID being completely novel coronavirus has no immediate treatment or vaccination, which I think is very well publicised and well known. Um, as such, those parts of the plan uh, were not and were unlikely to ever be directly relevant for a long time. Uh, other than that, all the bits leading up to that, exactly how you would organise the department, uh, potentially where it would go, the processes, the throughput, and connection with the wider hospital, both at City and at the QMC site, were very similar. Um, indeed, you know, a large scale communication exercise has been set up across the whole department. I think everyone's quite au fait now with the COVID 19 groups that have had quite a high level of success. They've obviously had some issues, but those things have been worked really quite well. Um, and major updates, particularly uh, things that affected everyone on the ground all the time, were occurring almost six to 12 hours at the start. So it's very hard to do that uh, to get it out to everyone really quickly. But I think things have settled down now quite a bit, um, particularly as we see some of our numbers you didn't see going into contracture, um, we're in a good place to respond whether we have a slight uplift at some point in the future or if we continue to see numbers fall. But I suspect that the department will still have hot and cold and slightly novel processing compared to whatever we consider normal <laughs> from before um, for some time to come. Uh, and so, you know, one of those things you said there was about the guidance changing, and I think something that's had a lot of traction in the media is has been PPE, personal protective equipment. It's become a bit of a cause celeb amongst opinion pieces and things like that, and certain people with certain political persuasions have used it as a, as a weapon in some cases. Um, do you want to ta take us through about how and why the guidance has changed as we've learned more about COVID? Because the initial pictures of, were of Chinese doctors who are all dressed like spacemen and, and you know, everyone needs to be in a negative pressure environment. And, and, and you know, do you want to just take us through the journey? Well, I think, I think it's safe to say that um, from the start, every country is different because of their level of preparedness and actual equipment that they, they keep in stock. Um, much has been made politically, as you said, uh, regarding how well the UK was prepared or not. And uh, that's far too big a topic for me to cover at the moment. Yeah. But relatively speaking, um, due to some pandemic flu planning, the UK was probably a better place than most, even though that might uh, be debatable with some people, uh, and a lot of other countries. Um, that said, China were dealing with a virus that essentially they had no experience of. I mean, it was literally brand new. Um, they knew that it would kill a certain amount of people because some of their conditions 
teams and practitioners and health staff actually caught the disease and then went on to die. So the only safe way to do with a hazard magnitude that you have no idea what it is, is to have the highest scale level of PPE at the time. Uh, very rapidly from across the world, the virus, the genome was all um, identified and sequenced and was put out on the internet so that we could all uh, study it in what might be considered a new age of cooperation perhaps. Um, it meant that immediately all countries had a degree of cooperation about exactly what the virus was, um, what its potential uh, route of spread, uh, and how it consisted was. That then directly affects um, how your likelihood of transmission, uh, your route of transmission, how you're going to catch it. Um, but also, as we've talked about AGP and high-risk things, things that generate far more high uh, volume and concentration aerosolized mixture, putting people at increased risk. Um, the guidelines for this country are separate to some other countries, but that's because every country has an individual stock. At the end of the day, uh, must have been made about the level of stock in this country, but ultimately, we can debate once it's all over about how much we should have had versus what we have got, but you can only then deal in a pragmatic way with what you have got. Um, and also, better to uh, sensibly ration some of the supply, whether you agree with that or not, to make sure that you've always got good quality of the right amount of all the key areas, rather than ever having the point where you have none at all um, for certain people. In terms of the specifics, um, we know that initially, uh, for AGP, it's always been at full level PPE, level 3 has been recommended, and quite rightly so. Um, the initial um, plan, and some people debate when people are at high risk, is when we didn't have a very high level in the population at all. And so at that stage, pragmatically, it was considered that surgical masks, gloves, aprons would provide quite a high level of protection against the disease, even in the vast majority of patients, and the vast majority wouldn't even have it, so it'd be impossible to contract it. Um, we know that as it's developed and uh, there are more cases in the community, the reason some of that guidance has been updated is actually because the relative risk of a patient having it is just higher. So your relative risk of contracting it is more. Um, and also data came to light uh, halfway in between that there is a potential small risk that if droplets get directly onto your skin, um, you can contract the infection through absorption. So as a result, that's where the full-length gowns rather than just partial came through. Um, in fairness, at a local level with our trust, um, there's been an Instagram and a PPE team, both coordinating trust and an ED, who responded every day to any new updates and tried to provide the answers by the next day or the next available opportunity, as fast as any institution I know. Um, they've responded um, faster than many other institutions across the country, including probably as good as anyone in the region. So, um, to be fair, it's never, never going to be perfect. I don't think uh, in an ideal world that's going to be possible. Um, but we currently have uh, within our trust enough to provide what we need going forward. Uh, and was always considered sensible to order in larger quantities uh, to ensure that we have the amount that we need. Um, so you, you mentioned there about aerosols and AGP, the aerosol generating procedure. Um, just want to touch on you know, what exactly is an aerosol when we're talking about droplets and aerosols and, and what actually counts as an aerosol generating procedure? Yeah, 
Okay, that's fine. Yeah, so basically, uh, most people in their lives have come across like a deodorant spray or something that basically has aerosolized particles within it. Um, it's basically where a liquid substance combined with a gas is then converted into a spray that has some form of uh, droplet material with it. So it's an aerosolizing generation procedure is basically something where the virus material gets combined with a higher pressure gaseous mixture and that can generate pressure so almost like a, a whirlpool or a um, whirlwind it can get spun around and then thrown up in higher concentration quantities but also over a slightly wider distance um, and as such anything such as that that has uh, uh, potential where pressure is involved, and obviously that involves all forms of RSI, suction, um, and CPAP and other things. There is a list that was, is, is quite obvious, but that's why it has to keep being updated. Um, they have that potential to mix those things together, particularly in a higher uh, concentration, and spread them much more um, with a higher percentage to anyone in the near vicinity. Mm. Um, and as such, that's why uh, that list has had to evolve, um, because some things that might have been considered aerosolized generated, such as nebulization, probably didn't quite have the level of pressure if applied correctly, and with the right flow rate to actually generate that mixture and that spread. Um, whereas other things that weren't thought to be aerosolized and generating, such as at some point chest compressions in uh, CPR, um, have been debated internationally and are now thought by the Business Council to probably just cross the line into what is a relative AGP. And thus, um, for instance, in our local ED, we have had to change our guidelines at least three times in order to best match immediately yeah. um, that to lower the risk to our staff as much as possible yeah. and to remain uh, reactive uh, and responsive to any latest update that increases the safety of envelope uh, for our staff. Yes. I, I'm smiling because the, there's been quite a... I, um, I would just say a public discussion. Resource Council on social media have, have mentioned this and and mentioned public health because they've been debating rather publicly whether chest compressions are an AGP. Um, how have you found, because obviously with our science heads on, you know, as the evidence changes, so does our opinion, so must the guidance. And as you've said, this is a novel virus. We're learning, we're adapting. How have you found it with this idea of, well, I was saying that last week but now the guidance has changed so now I've got to change how have you found the receptiveness of that you know because I was saying one thing now the evidence has changed now I've got to say another thing how, how have you found that so it's very challenging isn't it um, I think in life uh, if you put yourself up for something and particularly if you're talking about communicating or acting as a spokesman in anything you have to be prepared that occasionally you'll come out with something based on your best possible opinion that will then sometime later be shown to be either completely wrong or uh, will be shown that with new evidence we need to do something different. Um, it, I think it then becomes people's point of view. You can either be the kind of person who prefers to have all the evidence available um, and likes feeling that doesn't like the degree of uncertainty um, but if you are the kind of person who makes decisions when there's less evidence available, um, you just have to be the kind of person who's comfortable with the fact that the person hasn't been born yet, he's always been right. 
Um, although people might debate that. Um, <laughs> but ultimately, in the, you pay your money, you take your choice, and you do the best you possibly can, I think. And um, in terms of the evolving evidence all the time, um, I mean, you know, at the start, people were asking, one of the classic things was asking all the time about patient numbers, potential COVID numbers, and everything else. And one of the best examples is that any number you say is universally almost wrong. And the reason is because, uh, as we've seen in the media, if you compare it internationally, it tends to be numbers of either hospital admissions or uh, mortality in hospital, the figures that are generally compared because they're the most accurate. However, it does ignore uh, all potential mortality in the community who've never reached hospital. <laughs> and depending on your point of view, you're either just following what the national, the normal statistical value is, or you're ignoring it, or you're not saying it correctly, and therefore you're a bit damned if you do and damned if you don't. You can't possibly get that completely right. Yeah. Um, and also another example is we look at sheer numbers that we do, and they're available every day, but again, nobody ever really breaks them down by population size or per unit population. So again, uh, you have to bear in mind your actual physical number versus the number of people. Mm. And therefore, in some countries, yes, they might have slightly fewer deaths, for example, but it's far higher per unit population in the UK. So you have to change those tables so you can have a meaningful comparison of where you actually sit. Yeah. Um, in terms of uh, how to manage this incident, uh, I remember a long time ago at Star, uh, there were a number of criteria PHE had advised could potentially be coronavirus features. I'm sure people remember that it was a, a stairs, a temperature above 377, um, you know, a cough, new onset cough within the last seven days, and then it expanded to an enormous list of loss of taste of smell, uh, loss of hearing, um, and new onset shortness of breath, dyspnea, respiratory distress, um, and in some cases in uh, sepsis with no obvious course, DMV in the elderly population, and it's just expanded. I think now on my last flow chart, it was only like 17, but actually there were about three. So um, if we followed the current flow chart back at the start, so many more people wouldn't have gone to certain wards in the hospital, for example, or would have gone to different places. But we can't do anything about that. We were just doing the best we possibly could at the time. Um, but I think it shows how when new evidence occurs or when there are updates, how crucial being react uh, reaction to it um, being flexible to bring in new things rapidly, uh, but also how you communicate that out. And over a, you know, a huge organisation that we have, and in an ED where more than 500 staff, that's always very, very difficult. And I think people have tried their best. Mm. Um, I know there's been um, a lot of uh, issues regarding literally getting that message to everybody and filtering it down through chains. But I think we managed to get most of the key messages out on a regular basis to ensure people are safe. And hopefully, that if they didn't want more details, along with what we're doing at the moment, there are avenues to get as much uh, detail as people want. I mean, I, you know, I talk for England, I can bore people to death <laughs> on anything they want to know, generally speaking. Uh, but, uh, you know, I don't have to tell them to shut up rather than to keep talking. So, uh, as you can see, it's, um, in my case, I'm, I'm the kind of person who is happy to make a decision and turn out to be wrong, but if it, um, if it goes that way, you just learn from it, reflect, and hopefully improve uh, your practice in the future. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, COVID has actually, weirdly enough, probably helped us analyse certain things uh, in a way that hopefully both emergency medicine and processes in our hospital in the future uh, might actually be a bit better um, after this if we can grasp some of those opportunities. And you mentioned there about avenues of information. Um, 
I think it's fair to say that fake news has been a challenge, um, especially when the most powerful man in the world is recommending people inject bleach. Uh, and, you know, have a light inside them, I think was his other suggestion. Um, have, have you noticed any of that? Have you noticed a challenge of that? Uh, yeah, uh, in, you know, in this age of it's never been easier to find information. Uh, how, how have you felt? <laughs> I think I think it's totally right. I think it's um, it's very difficult. I mean, when arguably uh, the most powerful man in the world, like say, says about injecting disinfectant, um, with no, you know, the only evidence based feel that they'll probably kill you outright. Um, <laughs> generally, not uh, not great, is it? Um, you know, yeah, okay, you probably won't die of COVID, but you won't even have the chance to catch COVID if you try and follow that advice. So. Um, as examples of fake news, and this isn't just with this, it's just with Brexit debate and everything else that's happened recently. Um, I I am on social media, I'm not on Twitter, I probably should be, but I can't rely upon not to rant in hundred <laughs> characters, so it's probably safer if I'm not. Um, but I do see Facebook particularly, and sometimes you get some really helpful things that are on there, and sometimes you just look at it and go, what? There is always, when people have enough time to put something up there, unless it's from a recognised scientific source, generally speaking, it's always got a slant. We certainly mentioned at the start that, uh, unfortunately, as is the way, whatever happens, uh, there is always political gain out of any crisis for people. And therefore, uh, why, depending on people's political motivations, and this isn't just politicians or scientists or even the general public, uh, when you review Facebook, these some of the data that it's put up, it definitely is not transparent. It, it has a slant to um, uh, uh, basically to better show their point of view or highlight why they think they're correct. Um, and you know, there are, there are, there's so many ways to manipulate statistics to help highlight you or enhance your uh, the point you're trying to make. Um, but it might not be the best to educate or provide information to the public and actually simple things with high quality infographics based on real data and real analysis and from recognised sources is always better. Um, but I wouldn't want to extend uh, any form of political debate. Uh, but ultimately, the, like all things, the amount of material out there is often questionable. Um, but I would suggest that people, if they want real numbers, uh, would go to John Hopkins uh, University site or Worldometer, for instance, which are basically from the National Disease Registry, so they're unequivocal from that point of view. And actually, if you look carefully at the uh, COBRA briefing papers with a little asterisk on the bottom, that's where they get some of their figures from. Um, so as a result, uh, you can look at the same ones that the government look at in some regards and make your own conclusion. Um, but other than that, if you're looking for other things, Again, it's scientific literature, so it's from BMJ, uh, JAMA, The Lancet, you know, they don't always have, they don't have uh, slants and they're generally uh, peer-reviewed journal materials that have come out, so again, you know, they're, not, they're not bad for further information. Um, but yeah, in the world of social media, you have to be very careful what you pay attention to, and um, if at the end of the day, if you're down, it's best to go and ask uh, someone who, well, hopefully knows what they're talking about. Absolutely. Um, so we, if we sort of switch now, looking more at the clinical picture, um, as we said, lots of data was coming out of, of China and, and um, as this disease was making its way westwards. 
Um, we knew that about 80% of patients were getting quite a, a mild inverted commas illness, a flu-like illness. Yes, you're ill, but you don't need hospitalization. Um, and then of that 20% who did need to come to hospital, about 5% were needing to go to intensive care. So could we just have a chat then about, for those patients who are coming in and they are sick, what are we actually seeing? What is, what is COVID-19 doing to them that's making us go, ah, you're sick? And, and, and what makes us think that this patient's going to need intensive care? So, like you say, um, you know, the vast majority of people, uh, it's evidence that between about 80 and 90 percent, um, as time goes by, and the number of people we sample were actually test, um, do have a mild form of disease and will get better. Um, we've always considered across the world probably realistically about 15, 10 to 15 percent would need to be assessed in hospital, potentially slightly less in some places, um, and we very rapidly. Uh, particularly at local level, identified some immediate discharge parameters, potentially go home, that were uh, very safe and evidence-based. Um, but one of the things that was in there was always do their SATs. And one of the things that has been very interesting with COVID is that people can look quite well still. And normally, one of the things that we pride ourselves on as emergency physicians and anyone in acute care is the ability to almost look at someone from the end of the bed and go, you look sick. Yeah. And because you look sick, I'm going to do something about it um, pretty quickly. And my example for that was a, a chap who uh, won't give any clinical details, but basically reading the paper, and he looked totally fine. And he was having a normal conversation. But his sat was 78% on 15 litres. And to the point where it shocked the anaesthetic fraternity in our hospital, quite rightly. Um, and the anaesthetist even commented, oh, I can't believe I'm going to have to have a, a chat with this gentleman about potentially giving an anaesthetic that you may never recover from. What a weird situation to be in. So SATs have always been crucial so that we don't miss the sick, well-looking person, if that makes sense. Um, but other than that, in terms of what it does, um, COVID, as it develops, its main problem is that it starts attacking the respiratory system specifically. So um, it's quite well known now that it goes on to cause uh, ARDS, um, you know, uh, acute respiratory stress syndrome. Uh, and how that works is that the lungs or uh, parts of the lungs start having fluid uh, within them. And those areas can't properly oxygenate and ventilate. And as such, uh, that gas exchange can't be done in those places, and the effectiveness of the lungs is much lower. And at some point, your body will compensate by trying to work harder, by breathing more or trying to get more in. But there'll come a point where there's a tipping point where it can't uh, manage that anymore. And as such, what we see in those patients is increasing progressive respiratory distress. Um, the only thing of note which has happened that we have to be aware of is that some patients who look like they're ill but are just chugging along very, very similar, there is this thing about sudden deterioration or reaching a sort of cliff which has occurred. And those patients, this is why we watch them very carefully in ED and we do regular observations, is suddenly, immediately, their clinical picture can change. And those patients, um, we know, are the ones who tend to need critical care because they, they are usually rapidly in need of an anaesthetic. But fortunately, uh, across the trust as a whole, um, we haven't had um, as many RSIs or admissions to critical care as we might have predicted. 
um, and nowhere near uh, the amounts that we uh, paid for from the start. So that's only a good thing. That is a good thing. Um, so that process you were discussing, um, in some of the literature they've, they've been talking about wet lungs and comparing it to sort of the picture you see sometimes at higher altitudes, sort of pulmonary edema pictures. I, is that right? Is, is that the sort of thing we're seeing? So if you, high altitude pulmonary edema is basically, uh, if you, when, you, when you go to a, a high altitude, um, there are significant pressure changes. So as a result, that allows uh, movement or fluid shifts within the lung space. And the reason they mention it is because those fluid shifts um, then take up areas where gas exchange would be possible. And some of those slightly ground glass uh, edematous changes within the lungs, both in um, COVID and HAPE, do have some similarities. The difference is that the ground glass, classically from COVID, tends to be towards the bases, uh, bivasally at the bottom. Um, but actually, with HAPE, it's more of a standardised pulmonary edema pattern with much more of your classical backswing shadowing type thing um, across the patient. But in terms of if you move the HAPE features and bring it down a little bit, they'll look similar. Um, and that's why it presents radiologists with quite a challenge <laughs> because uh, although the features of COVID um, to some would look fairly obvious, they can be mimicked by several other things. And therefore, sometimes it can be hard and require a very high degree of expertise to declare that it's uh, highly likely or versus probable or indeed not at all. Um, and that's why it's an example where we rely on a multi-specialty environment within our hospital in order to try and get the earliest possible answer for what to do with our patients. Okay. And, um, yeah, so uh, I don't think we've ever had such rapid reporting of chest x-rays and the, the, there's, there's, you know, the Royal, Sur this, um, Royal College of Surgeons, if you're doing a CT abdomen, add in a CT of the lungs and, you know, it, it's been a full of that, hasn't it? <laughs> um, uh, so, unfortunately, obviously, we know COVID is, is fatal for some of our patients um, and, um, you know, that, that's been a, a sad feature of it. And as you've said, we, we, we're still probably not sure of the exact number. And there is obviously a difference between dying of COVID and dying with COVID um, but that, that we may never get to the bottom of. But, but what's... What's going through your mind as a, as a senior ED clinician to determine whether a patient, if they're looking that they may need, uh, you know, they're very poorly, that point between either an intubation in critical care versus palliation, what, what's the, what are the, the, the decisions? So, first and foremost, these things are never easy. Um, you're dealing with people's lives, they have relatives, um, and it's all individualised, so it's always on an individualised case-by-case basis. And one of the most important things to do is to take the time to assess this thing, uh, decisions that will see this care properly, um, but also in conjunction with trying to discuss it with their relatives as much as possible um, around their baseline comorbidity states in order to identify what the most appropriate thing is. Um, we have generated large volumes of additional 
material, um, including, for instance, in the HCOP pathway, where it suggested that probably uh, most patients who have a clinical frailty score of six or more should should be considered, the word is considered, not must, but is considered uh, for a DNA CPR. Um, more of a prompt uh, to allow the confidence with some of our more junior staff to have some of these initial conversations. Um, but in terms of uh, actual parameters around escalation, um, if you have advanced disease of the cardiovascular system, um, the respiratory system, uh, malignancy, um, or you are very frail, you have multiple comorbidity states, uh, particularly if you need a higher level of support in a residential care setting or nursing home, or if your exercise tolerance generally is poor, so less than 200 metres on the flat, or you have a problem going upstairs, those things immediately highlight that um, intubation and ventilation is unlikely to be something that will benefit you as you have a reduced chance of surviving your period in intensive care. It doesn't mean that your chance of survival is zero, that's not the case. It is much lower and it would be a prolonged stay for ventilation with the inherent risk that you could uh, develop associated uh, ventilation, ventilation required pneumonia, and it can be quite an unpleasant, uh, prolonged um, thing for families and patients um, to deteriorate over a period of time for something that's unlikely to be successful. And whereas sometimes, depending on their individual circumstances, the more humane, kinder approach uh, might be to take an illness that they're unlikely to survive um, and make them as comfortable as possible, but also to give them the dignified end as far as possible um, that I think we'd all like in that position. Um, it remains very challenging to try and allow um, relatives to be there for their um, family member uh, at the end, as it were. Uh, as a trust, we've tried to um, allow those avenues to be as open as possible right up to the end, to allow um, relatives to have access um, so that uh, there can be some form of comfort um, and dignified end as much as possible. Um, but ultimately, these decision-making processes are difficult. And you, like I said, you have to do them individually, if possible, and they're fully conscious or they can understand. It's always best to go through it calmly um, and explain it to with the patient and to give them the resources and the tools they need or whatever level they require so that you can go through it with them so they can come up with their decision in most uh, cases. But other than that, uh, if and when it's difficult, sometimes it very is, friends are good. And so if I ever have very complex resource decisions, I sometimes don't do those things on my own because ultimately um, it's nice to have the backup or the agreement of either one of your ED colleagues or and or some of your colleagues both from um, HCOP or indeed critical care. Um, like we said at the start, no person has ever got every decision right ever. It's not, it's not possible. Um, so in some of these things we're just doing the best we can, what we think is the best thing for the patient and their family. And ultimately if you um, come to that decision with three other people, generally speaking, it's probably a bad one. And um, 
as such, that can make you feel a little bit happier. So again, whenever any of the juniors come across some of these things, and inevitably we have, or any of the nursing or allied health staff or anything else, if it's in doubt, it's best to ask. And we yeah. should foster and encourage communication and discussion of these cases. Um, as not only does it make people feel better, and um, they don't take their work home with them so much, if we foster communication and discussion, but also it, it is a learning opportunity at the same time so that people can develop more of these abilities and make them more comfortable and confident in their assessment. And um, when you're not in the emergency department, you can you are sometimes found in in a helicopter. Uh, you're uh, pre-hospital emergency medicine. Um, so I so suppose just wants to ask about intubation with COVID nineteen and how it is different, uh, if it is at all different. And the you know we've already talked about about aerosol generating procedures, but but the steps that are taken when you're intubating a patient who is either confirmed or, or suspected as having COVID-19? Well, basically, first of all, I'm going to say I, I'm not allowed to fly. <laughs> it's a shocking idea, you know, uh, I, no. So You're in the back, you're not in the wheel. <laughs> um, doing various bits and bobs. But um, in terms of the actual process of intubation and or rapid sequence induction, um, we know it's, it's not really in terms of the relative risk. It's no different to the hospital procedure that some people might be more au fait with or seen or have a better knowledge of. At the end of the day, it's, it's the same thing. It is providing um, sedation-based drugs and a paralytic agent in order to um, sedate someone and then take over or temporarily stop their breathing while we put uh, an endotracheal tube um, into their airway so that we can then take over their ventilation. If you think of that process, um, the same risks that exist in hospital exist in the pre-hospital environment. And in fact, in the pre-hospital environment, it sometimes can be very noisy. Um, lighting often is in no way ideal or optimal. Uh, we often we try our best, but space is often a suboptimal um, consideration. Um, and indeed, uh, we often don't have, although we often have the patient ambulance trolley, it often isn't quite always the uh, optimum height as in hospital. So there are additional challenges uh, that mean every pre-hospital uh, anaesthetic or uh, pre-hospital emergency anaesthetic or fear, as we call it, has risks even above and beyond the ones in hospital. So every sensible practitioner considers them a difficult airway off the bat and assesses them that way. But in terms of aerosolizing generating procedures, it is, as is obvious, 100% yes. And therefore, we have to don the same level of the level three PPE that you would see within the hospital environment. Obviously, due to the slight differences in organizations and working practices, the exact thing we wear is slightly different. Um, some of my colleagues for the air ambulance wear what I call the dark veil mask with the panels up the side um, and a full suit looking like uh, the more Chinese um, boiler suit operation that we've had in ED recently when we changed some <laughs> of our uh, PPE stock. Um, but again, other people they can wear a visor, an appropriate FFP3 mask um, with a full suit on so that again all the skin areas are covered 
Um, and so if you think about it, it's just a variant of level three PPE because we do the same high pressure interventions, the suction and pre-oxygenation. Um, that is done for an in-hospital anaesthetic. And so uh, in order to make sure that we are protected because it is the uh, highest or one of the highest risk potential procedures for creating both the aerosol but also high viral load, um, we all approach it uh, with that uh, level of safety and protection. Generally speaking, for any patients that we can't 100% confirm their exact history, and again, it's almost it's very difficult to confirm anybody's history 100%, uh, we have a very, very low threshold for basically suspecting that until proven otherwise, they have or are suspected of COVID. We do have your patient who is GCS15, who does need to go and have an anaesthetic, um, who you can ask directly. Um, but again, we still, because of the fact that it could be in the asymptomatic phase, um, but actually have the disease, we still manage them potentially as if there is a potential threatening risk of transmission. Um, I can think of a Burns patient who uh, had an RSI on arrival to Queen's, um, who could quite literally confirm that of all 17 COVID criteria, they didn't have any. <laughs> And although the RSI was done in cold resus, um, which was entirely appropriate, the anaesthetic team and the other the fourth practitioner who was there, all four of them were quite sensibly level three AGP appropriate PPE. Um, and as such, therefore, there are differences between how we practice in the pre-hospital and the hospital environment. But actually, when it comes to COVID, we're essentially just working in a slightly different way, but matching it with the same level of safety. Um, and consideration. And um, once they are intubated, we're, we're hearing about um, patients with COVID-19 being put in the prone position. Um, why is that? Why are some patients being proned when they're, you know, laying on their front, basically? So, um, proning, uh, putting them on the front, is for any patient where there's high airway pressures or things are struggling to ventilate. Asthma is always a good example. Um, sometimes it can be, particularly when you get ARDS, that it's very hard to get gas you need off and back out to the air. So we find that that increased intrathoracic pressure sometimes can help uh, with the ventilatory parameters and how well a patient responds, both in critical care, but also crucially outside. So there are bridging measures, as we've said, to uh, an anaesthetic in the hospital environment. Um, and those include um, the use of CPAP, which has been used quite extensively across the country in various guises, but also proning. And it's quite well known now that if you can take someone who's on the verge of needing an anaesthetic, that perhaps prone them whilst they're on high flow oxygen, in some cases it might be something that stays off the need for going to critical care. Not in the vast majority, and it's quite an intensive process as it requires quite a high number of uh, staff to actually do it safely. Um, but in some circumstances, that has been successful. Um, in, in intensive care settings, 
Um, it can take at least seven or eight people to successfully uh, roll and prone and adjust the patient safely and in a coordinated fashion. So whilst it's definitely better for the patient, it has to be done. It's one of those things that we don't see uh, down in the department very often, um, which is why it can be very arduous uh, for our critical care colleagues to have to do that for a high volume number of patients. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Cool. And um, just finally to, to wrap up, um, you talked a little bit earlier about the future and the cold versus hot division. Um, you know, the modern NHS in its modern period, modern healthcare hasn't really faced a pandemic before. Um, this has certainly been a challenge. Um, how do you see emergency medicine and the, the department in general in, in the next year or so as we come out of this? How long do you think the hot versus cold division will stay? Um, you know, I know a lot of it, we still don't know whether COVID will come back in, in spikes continuously, but as, as much as we know at the moment, how do you see the next you know, 12, 24 months going? Well, I think we know that um, winter, or whatever we now call winter, <laughs> in terms of our numbers, uh, in emergency medicine across the country, um, it used to be that you got a significant spike in the winter months due to standard flu season and other respiratory conditions. Um, and over the last three to four years, we've been quite well versed that winter is all around. And actually, there's no drop, it's just that the numbers year on year just increase. Um, as such, one of the concerns I think in the longer term is depending on how long and how COVID hangs around and in terms of our number of patients that contract it. Um, if we added a degree of COVID to our standard seasonal flu and other respiratory condition, then progressing into winter would be even more difficult than normal. And I, not only in our trust, but in others, plans are already been in place to try and mitigate that should it occur, because it's considered quite a significant risk. In terms of how long we're going to have cold versus hot, um, or the way our department is structured, um, it's definitely too early to tell. Um, we haven't, as a country yet, relaxed our social distancing measures to any significant degree. So until we see some of that and any corresponding bounce in the numbers two weeks hence, it would be very difficult for anybody to tell you exactly uh, what numbers we're going to keep seeing. Um, if we look at our trend, and again, it it's historic, so we have new circumstances now, but generally speaking, we were seeing in the single-figure number of potentials, and I say potentials, not cases, um, towards the start of February. We're now in the back end of April, so two months hence, we have appeared, according to the national data and even locally, to be clearing our peak. So if it was two months to get to where we are now, to get to single-figure cases, you might extrapolate the curve, might be two months to reach single-figure cases again. And I think um, the current national and localised trends suggest that we could be back to mm. single-figure numbers, possibly, um, towards the end of June or early July. If we're only seeing one or two a day of possibles as opposed to likely, 
then I think we'll reach a situation where we manage them like any other infectious disease where we're much more, we put them immediately in a cubicle, bury them, use the same knowledge and precautions that we've learned through this pandemic. Um, I know that both the country and also both in healthcare and on a national level, they're keen to try and bring in carefully some things that reintroduce some business continuity. Um, this is in all sectors, both across the country and in healthcare. Um, we know that there are probably more sensible things to start with, and it will be interesting to see if we do some of those things probably in early to mid-May, I would guess, what the subsequent uh, changes are over two weeks. Um, but I think we will be talking about COVID definitely for the rest of the year. Um, in terms of in relation to wider society, I suspect some things will start to relax on the social distancing from about maybe the second week in May, perhaps, um, and we'll see. Um, but I think all avenues are being considered and planned for both in the ED and in the wider hospital. Um, and we've been fortunate in some regards in that the East Midlands has not, generally speaking, seen the same number of cases or patient loads that other parts of the country have. And at, uh, in our trust as a tertiary level centre, we've had a high level of resource versus the number of uh, that we've had attendances. So I think we will be in a much better position as a trust to get towards um, as optimum service and adaptions as we can mm. going forward. Um, but yes, my personal thoughts is that uh, there's a big national holiday on the 8th of May, and I don't think they'll do anything until that's finished. I was going to say, um, we've got two bank holidays coming up in the next yeah, month. Yeah, because that will uh, inevitably, uh, if they could relax anything before then, would encourage people to get together too much. Uh, but I mean, judging by the fact that we seem to be 10 to 14 days behind some of our European partners, um, our European partners are now very much publicising how they're going to go about doing things and what they're going to consider. Um, I, so in our case, it will become when, not if. And uh, I think somewhere around the second week in May, I think a lot of the um, the data and economics and other things are going to mean we're going to have to tentatively take some careful steps uh, in a forward direction. Cool. Um, brilliant. Thank you, Andy. Um, we can start wrapping up now. Um, did you know Manjeet? Now, I have to say, I have never had the personal pleasure no. of meeting yeah, Manjeet, that's fine. I just realised I didn't ask. Like, yeah, an amazing emergency medicine physician who yeah. was a bastion for the college, for consultants and trainees across the region. Um, and it's an absolute tragedy, isn't it? Um, and I, there's an outpouring of admiration and support, which is entirely appropriate and the least that we can do to highlight what a quality man he was. Mm. Um, from someone who almost is independent, um, to hear the stories of what a wonderful character, um, what a high quality clinician, 
it's just the kind of example to aspire to. And I'm quite glad that both our college and also the outpouring from us at a local level across the region um, to show our kindness and our care. And that's ultimately, I hope it's got back to his family and the wider people, both at Darwin Hospital and in the University Department, um, so they can feel some comfort or take some positivity from such a tragic thing, but at least that he was just a very respected, kind man who touched so many trainees um, in such a positive manner. And that's, that's clear to me, so it must be very clear to everyone who knew him well or better than I did. Thank you, Andy. Uh, well, thank you so much for zooming in. And uh, I'll let you get back to your Pokemon, whatever it is you're doing with your uh, with your little one this afternoon. It's all right, mate. It's fine. Um, the only other thing, JT, is you specifically sent me a question about NIV. Oh yes. Do you want me to answer that a little before I disappear? Because uh, yeah, would you I like mentioned to... that because it's also been mentioned at some of our meetings. Fine. Yeah. Um, that Actually, yes. Are a bit that's about it. Cool. Yes. So. Um, <laughs> yes. So. Um, NIV, so usually we, obviously NIV we're using usually in patients uh, with COPD exacerbations, type 2 respiratory failure, um, and we've received a lot of, you know, guidance actually to avoid NIV if possible. Um, would you like to touch about that? So basically, at the start, I'm going to try and separate this very clearly. Patients who are not, we're not suspecting COVID, if they need NIV, they should get an IV. There are areas within the hospital where a cold patient who has a normal exacerbation of COPD, who needs a bit of an IV to make them better, can go to have an IV to make them better. We need to be very clear that it's only in COVID that an IV is less effective. And generally speaking, the reason is because as they develop ARDS and become hypoxemic, it can't deliver the level of oxygenation more than 50% that is generally required. So as such, the guidance in COVID became not a bit, and this is where the confusion came from, or bust. So it was like we sort of missed out in IV. But again, when we say we missed it out, there were alternatives such as a bit of CPAP or indeed proning that for that specific group uh, were a benefit. But the vast majority of our patients coming into the hospital when we test them are not COVID. They are coming in for an exacerbation of respiratory system due to isolated pneumonia, COPD, and many other things besides. And actually, that's actually more common. So those patients, if they have evidence of type 2 respiratory failure with a degree of acidosis where NIV is indicated, they should still have it. And as such, it's, if you're not certain of this, it is best to go and discuss it with somebody senior. Um, as as a department, one of the things we need to do is to ensure those that are still indicated for NIV definitely get it. Um, and consider that the COVID patients are a bit of a select group, and there is a reason why NIV is not as useful for them. But it is very useful for those who don't have COVID, and therefore we need to remember that. Um, and as such, there's some very helpful guidelines um, on both the intranet and the critical care system and our critical care liaison team um, and point you in the right direction. 
it's got a very, very easy one-slide summary of why uh, NIV is always useful in COVID. But again, if you remember, and it's blue tapped on the wall in Resus, um, when NIV is indicated type 2 respiratory failure, um, for the patients who are cold or subsequently proved that COVID is unlikely to be the cause of their symptoms, they are very much still indicated for NIV. So please, if the take-home message for that is, don't rule out NIV for everybody. It's less useful in COVID, but it's very useful if they don't have it, and they should still get it. And I hope that makes sense. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you, Andy. Uh, well, brilliant. Thank you so much for zooming in. Um, lots uh, covered there, and I'll let you get back to your Pokemon making session uh, with your little one. Sock puppet. Sock puppet. Your Pokemon. Pokemon. Sock puppet. <laughs> Thank you, Andy. Pleasure. Cheers.